So let's just have another moment of, of quiet where we just invite God into our thinking, into our breathing, into our very being. Lord, have your way with us. Please minister to us by your Holy Spirit in this place right now. Amen. Um, I did promise uh, last week that I was going to write something of, a, of an album um, this, this last week because we're doing a book by book Bible overview series, if you didn't know, and Jonathan had challenged me to write a little rap for every um, book of the Bible, and I'd said, oh yeah, and I've gradually got behind more and more. Um, and again, I'm apologizing. So this, this week, I was a bit ill. My youngest is very ill. So I've only come up with one, but I'll give it to you. So it's, um, it's Deuteronomy, if you remember back that far. <laughs> Moses, the motivator on the edge of milk and honey, Pentateuch closes with this epic Deuteronomy, an original sermon, therefore a favorite for preachers. In fact, three talks in one. It's got so much to teach us. Through it, young King Josiah brought revival. Jesus quotes more from it than other books of the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. In other words, Moses saying, know where you're from. The Shema, complete surrender. It involves daily choosing. Why, oh why, do we find holiness so amusing? Gerizim and Ebal, blessings and curses. When we don't walk with you, we're not surprised by the hearses. But with you, there are blessings. There's eternal life. No more pesky Satan. No more strife. Speaking these truths out loud, it's good for the soul. Expression deepens impression, is what we're told. The challenge of this book is truly quite compelling. Imagine assembling all ages. Imagine kids yelling. No bouncy castle, hook a duck, or candy floss selling. Instead, transfixed on old man Moses, who's just telling... This day, with earth as my witness, choose life. So come to me, all who are weary, says Jesus Christ. Yeah, right, that one? That's all right, didn't mess it up. Right, we're in one Samuel, though, tonight, and I've still got um, a load to do, so I promise another album this week. One Samuel, and uh, we're going to be dotting to and fro um, through the book, so um, try and keep up, but I'll understand if you just want to sit back and listen. Do you prefer to stick out or blend in? <laughs> On the whole, I gather, people are far happier to blend in than to stick out, regardless of personality types. It might not be you, but that's on the whole. Uh, to put that another way, maybe not the most helpful, but people want to be normal and ordinary rather than odd or subnormal. When we come to 1 Samuel, we come to the Israelites wanting to blend in with the nations around them. Rather than feeling special as a theocracy where God himself is the king, Israel feel odd. And they want to feel more like um, everyone else, normal. And at a decisive moment in 1, chap uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, they cry out, we want a king over us. So that verse 20 we also may be like all the nations. The heart of this book, it deals with the establishment of the Israelite monarchy. But I want to be upfront and, and say that this wasn't altogether a good thing for the reasons I've just mentioned. 
Now, hear me out. I'm not dismissing all other monarchies. I was a big fan of the Queen. I hope that will become true um, with our King. Um, I think he's done all right so far. But with the Queen, I was a big, fa- I was a big fan of her faith. I loved how her faith came across in her Christmas messages. And for a time, at least, I was therefore a big fan of the crown. Uh, we could get into um, <laughs> quite political conversations if, if I said that I was still watching it. But um, for a while, anyway. However, when zooming in on Israel here, it's clear their reasons for wanting a king weren't good. They were tired of looking different for God. They wanted to blend in for added emphasis again, so that we also may be like all the other nations. Friends, God's people are meant to stick out. God is holy, which means that he is separate and distinct in every single way, and his people should follow suit, be holy because I'm holy. We humbly, therefore, need to ask ourselves if we're Christians, Are we getting tired of sticking out? Is it even obvious to my non-Christian friends that I, in fact, have a different worldview and that I live for Christ and his glory? You know, maybe we strove to be distinct at some point in the past, but after years of being treated with suspicion, we're thinking of starting over, you know, beginning a new chapter where our lives aren't going to be considered odd, but just, just normal. Or blend in. Well, friends, whoever you are, whether you believe this or not, whatever your past, whatever you think your capabilities are, God, when he calls, isn't going to call you to normality. He wants all of you. Your willpower. He doesn't want you to simply go with the flow. That's what dead fish do. He'll call you, and he'll call you to a life of adventure, which won't necessarily make sense to a watching world, anything but normal. You're uniquely made by him and for him, and he wants your uniqueness to shine for his glory. So there's the gentle challenge on this theme as we begin 1 Samuel, and it comes with added force when we hear God's verdict in, uh, again, chapter 8. Verse seven, he says, this is God speaking, they have rejected me from being king over them. They wanted to blend in, so they pushed God aside. And I don't know about you, but with this theme, I just want to check myself. I don't want to do the same. So for the rest of our time in this book, I want to particularly focus on three individual leaders popping up in these pages, since 1 Samuel really is a commentary on kingship. And I hope we'll see that leaders can immensely help or hinder God's people from sticking out for him. Before diving in, it's uh, it's worth saying, I've been trying to give a bit of an overview for all of the books, that 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book, It was the Septuagint translators who separated them, and since then they've remained so in our Bibles, which is why we're treating them as individual overviews for this series. It's also worth noting that Jewish tradition saw the prophet Samuel himself as the author 
books named after him, after all. And in chapter 10, verse 25, we're told that he wrote a book. Could have been this book. Uh, Together with 2 Samuel, it spans about 140 years uh, from around 1100 BC. Let's get more of a feel for this book then. Three leaders. I'm going to introduce you to Samuel, chapters 1 to 7, Saul in chapters 8 to 15, and then King David in chapters 16 to 31. And we're going to be learning from good and bad models of leadership. So firstly then, chapters 1 to 7. Don't worry, you don't have to read all of them here and now. Samuel the obedient. The very name Samuel means God hears. Before his birth, Hannah, his mother, was barren. Others around her were conceiving, and in that culture, I mean, it was cruel, but they were therefore looking down on her and making her feel all the more helpless and worthless. In desperation, she cried out to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And if you know your Bible story, that prayer is answered. God hears. Samuel is born. And his whole life is one of dedication and obedience. There's that great story of how God uh, calls Samuel in chapter three. I'm sure it's a chapter you will know very well. Chapter begins, end of verse one, by saying, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Ironically, immediately following that, Samuel hears the Lord. He hears his name called three times as he's lying down, resting in the temple. It's just a reminder to us that God does speak personally. Each time Samuel hears this, he gets up and he reports to his boss at the time, the priest Eli, and he says, here I am, you called me. First two times, Eli replies, I didn't call you. Can't lie back down. However, on the third time, Eli, Eli realizes that actually something's going on here for this to be happening. The Lord's at work. And he tells Samuel the next time he's called, he should respond Speak, Lord, for your servants listening. And that's what Samuel does. And from that point on, we have Samuel the prophet, the last judge of Israel. And I guess we just pause at that moment and say, are we listening? Are we listening like a Samuel to the Lord's voice, waiting, listening, waiting some more? listening, waiting some more. It's hard to do in our 21st immediate culture where we just are in the business of rushing, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, this anxiousness to listen typifies Samuel's life. Uh, Let me read chapter 3, verse 19. Quote, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. This guy, Samuel, he cherished every single breath the Lord breathes. I don't know if you've ever seen a book which has been demolished by a bookworm. You know, they, they are actually a thing, bookworms. They, they drill holes in books. Well, <laughs> Samuel's Bible would have looked like that. 
He was a bookworm for the Bible. What he fed off is how he grew. And again, we challenge ourselves, do we love reading the Bible? Do you treasure it like Samuel did? Okay, he didn't have the full Bible back then as we have it, but you get my gist. He wasn't afraid to stick out for the Lord. And that's part and parcel because he allowed God's word to shape his life, to shape his worldview. He allowed God's word to shape what he thought was important and what he thought was unimportant. And again, we keep on asking ourselves questions. Are we likewise convinced that the Bible is of utmost importance to us in every decision we make on a day-to-day basis? Are we convinced that the Bible is God's word, not just to us, but to all, seeing as he made all? Because sometimes I wonder, I know it's true of me, I'm sure it's true of you as well, I believe this, but I don't always share it. And, and at that point, I'm like a ball hogger on a football pitch, when actually my teammates are crying out for a pass. Are we sharing this precious word? Again, like Samuel, sharing it with our, with our kids, if we've got kids, you know, at, bed, at bedtime, reading them a part of the Bible, not just, just William or Horrid Henry. <laughs> with our mates, are we sending them texts of encouragement with the Bible? It could be something which really lifts spirits this week. Whoever, whenever, however. Towards the end of his life, When speaking to the people of Israel gathered together, he says these striking words. uh, Chapter 12, verse 23. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I'm so challenged by that. Far be it from me that I should sin. I mean, he uses the word sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now, friends, I'm not trying to throw what we'd call Catholic guilt on you this evening by no means. But, oh man, isn't our world, our church crying out for leaders like this who are set on serving their people that they consider the lack of prayer for them sinful? Can you imagine if our MPs and Prime Minister were known for spending a couple of hours every day praying for a long list of names in their constituency? Wow. What a legend Samuel was. So this is the kind of leadership we're learning about when when we observe Samuel. One of obedience, utter dependence on God. And although he eventually anoints both Saul and Samuel to be kings, uh, sorry, Saul and David to be kings. He makes it very clear, he, he himself, he didn't want a king. He was more happy with Israel being a theocracy with God as their king. So that's Samuel, the obedient. Chapters eight to 15, we move on to Saul. And I've titled him Saul the Insecure. Saul was the first king of Israel. And if you read chapter nine, verse two, it's clear to see why he was chosen by the people. Chapter nine, verse two. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. As Saul, 
He's the ultimate pin-up boy in Israel. He looked pretty impressive and would be a great face of Israel when politically engaging with other world leaders. They'd be left remarking, oh, Israel, what an impressive nation. You see his potential in being a great spiritual leader, chapter 10, as he prophesies uh, with the other prophets. And pretty much as soon as he's enthroned, we see his military prowess too as he defeats the Ammonites in chapter 11. Sadly though, that's about where his good example of leadership ends. The rest of his life, seriously, is one bad decision after another. Ultimately ending, which is sad, in one of the Bible's rare suicides. Uh, Unlike Samuel, rather than constantly treasuring uh, God's word, he, he uses it to suit him and uses other spiritual gurus when God's word doesn't sit well with him. From what I can see of Saul, I think his life was marked by insecurities and a longing, a longing for the approval of others. Now, what do I mean by insecure? I mean that Once he's tasted a bit of popularity, he can't deal without it. And what was once held with conviction will be severely diluted, even forgotten, to ensure public approval, backpedaling. And we see that again in political leaders all the time, but also in pretty much any form of leadership, business CEOs and sadly in the church, with pastors and bishops, Insecure leaders become yes men or women, governed by popular opinion rather than God's morals. And we just pause and ask ourselves, is any of this true of us? Because in some way, we're each leaders in this room. There'll be different realms of leadership we inhabit. Saul would do whatever was necessary to ensure his fame. So when young King David was becoming popular, Saul went way beyond negative campaigning. We'd we'd call that mudslinging today. Even though David would graciously serve Saul by playing the liar to ease his anxiety, Saul still tried to repeatedly kill David. I mean, it's horrific. In chapter 18, verse 7, Saul hears some women singing these lyrics. I don't have a tune for them. But Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Presumably there was a catchy tune. Anyway, this this triggers this intense jealousy which just rises up in Saul. He's not angry with the women singing. They probably didn't even know Saul would hear their song. Instead, he's angry at David. So much so that chapter 18 verse 9 Saul eyed David from that day on. He kept tabs on him. Friends, it's worth acknowledging, both in our lives, but just in general, jealousy, it will take us to some horrendous places. It's ensnaring. And it's this Jealousy of Saul's that completely governs the rest of his life. In chapter 18, we find him angry, displeased, afraid, fearful, 
and he treats David in verse 29 as a continual enemy. The worst thing for Saul, and again we need to listen here, is that all of these feelings he's harboring are kept secret. Saul has to live with them by himself. That's how ensnaring jealousy is. And so I plead with you today and I'm preaching to myself as ever, if any of us feel shackled by this kind of jealousy, please confide in somebody tonight because confession could set you free. I know it's difficult letting go of stuff, of pain. But boy, it can be freeing. So there we have it anyway. Israel longed for a king and at the very heart of this book, 1 Samuel, we find the king who had looked awesome in their eyes becomes a huge snare for them. A king who was more concerned about his own insecurities than the nation he was supposed to be leading. We ask ourselves, is outward appearance and prestige too important to us when it comes to leadership? Good question to ask. Anyway, last leader, David. And I've titled him David, the Lord's choice. And this is chapters 16 to 31. Uh, earlier with Samuel, I spoke about allowing the Bible to shape our worldview. And one cannot read 1 Samuel without noticing how God means everything to David. I don't know if you've seen the film Amazing Grace, um, but there's a moment in the film where William Wilberforce is overwhelmed by God's magnificent and he's sitting on this dewy ground just looking up at a spider's web and he's mesmerized by it, how the, the, the kind of dew is caught in the web and he's mesmerized of God, the detail of his creation and his heart's overflowing with love. Well, that, friends, is David in 1 Samuel. It says that everything he sees, everything he does, everything he says speaks of God's sovereignty it's why he's not afraid when he first sets eyes on Goliath, the Philistine, the tallest man on the planet, even taller than Saul. When Goliath goes into battle with his heavy metal armor glinting in the sunlight, he looks more like a transformer than a human being. He's terrorizing Israel's army. And even tall King Saul is petrified. Little David, on the other hand, he cannot understand why everyone is so scared. He sees Goliath as an enemy of God. And most significantly, he sees God as Israel's protector. And therefore, you know, for him, there's just no reason to fear. It's so clear in his thinking, God's bigger than him. <laughs> now, all of us have fears. I do, you do. Many of them are understandable. Not all of them, but lots of them are understandable. As some of our fears, we put our hands up and we say, it's not logical, but it's a fear. That's fear. Nonetheless, friends, we could find life so much easier if we allowed God to permeate those fears. What fears do you have that you've been slow to confront? Sometimes it's by not confronting a fear, we credit it even more mystery and power over us. It's time, maybe tonight, that we just spoke out, we verbalized those fears to God because as David knew, he's bigger than them. I remember hearing how uh, in one of 
Bear Grylls' adventure series, he gave people the opportunity to confront their fears head on. So a bungee jump for someone terrified of heights, <laughs> hugging a python for someone terrified of snakes. Supposedly, the success rate of conquering fears this way on that program was almost 100%. Now, it's much easier, I think, than, than, than that, though, for, for, for us most of the time, I think. And right now, we have the opportunity to invite God into chisel down some of those fears, to break their hold over us. We can't do it on our own. We're not bigger than them, but he is. Anyway, back to David. He had lots of brothers, you know, and his brothers would have laughed when they found out that he wanted to fight Goliath. They considered him their little cheese boy. <laughs> They probably called him Cheese Boy um, because he used to bring the daily rations of cheese from Daddy to their, their camp on the battle lines. At that stage, David was a little prepubescent schoolboy, not yet wearing adult clothes. And yet in chapter 17, we see his zeal for God as he shouts out to Goliath before killing him with a sling. Verse 45 David's words, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. This is the trust in God that marks out King David. He seeks to, to be God's and to honor God whenever possible, which also means not killing Saul when opportunities are handed to him on a plate. Could be crass and say, handed to him on a pan. <laughs> Some of you will know that he had the opportunity to kill Saul when he was you know, doing, doing his business. Um, probably didn't use a pan back then, but hey-ho. Um, and he doesn't take it because in his mind, he's the Lord's anointed. And he's not gonna go against the Lord's anointed. It is why when Samuel rebukes Saul for his disobedience, we read chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. That's David. A man after his own heart. So friends, as I come into close, we've had three leaders under the microscope. And I started by asking you whether you prefer to stick out or blend in. Unless we have a leader who shows us what it's like to live all out for God, we will probably, like Israel, revert to blending in with the world around us. Although David was a great king, although all other Israelite kings are basically compared to him, we too know that he did have his own flaws, and we'll hear more about that in 2 Samuel. The flawless one in one Samuel is God himself. And that, friends, is why Samuel was so, so, so upset when Israel wanted a king other than God. God himself is the hero of this book. He's the one who answers Hannah's prayer. He leads Samuel. 
He brings victory, including the laughable victory of David against Goliath. Uh, Chapter five is a great chapter, by the way, um, if you wanna read it later. The Ark of the Covenant, where God was said to dwell, it gets stolen by the Philistines in one of their rampages. They take it back to Ashdod, one of their cities, and they put it in one of their their temples, temples of uh, temple to Dagon. They place it next to the, the great Dagon himself, this statue. The next morning when they return, Dagon has fallen face down on the ground before the ark. Next morning, it's the same again, even though they've, they've put him back upright. The next morning, it's Dagon's head has actually come off of the statue as well. Message is clear. No one can compete or compare to God. Nobody. And so if you really want to know how to live your life, don't get sidetracked by flawed leaders. Look to God, who makes himself known. And as all of us in here know, I'm sure, he has made himself fully known through Jesus Christ. Did Jesus not cherish his father's words more than he did the praise of men? Did he not rise early in the morning when it was still dark just to spend some alone time with his father? He and the father are one. Friends, when we think leadership today, why are we so slow to just look directly to Jesus? Why do we look horizontally around us? Can I encourage us all this evening to just look straight to Jesus and let him define godly leadership for us? Our lives are safe in his service. Friends, that is one Samuel. I hope it's given you lots to think through this next week. I know it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me preaching on it as a leader. I'll give you a few moments now to just reflect on some of those things.